Titus chapter 2. This morning we'll be looking at verses 4 through 8, but I'll go ahead and read the, the larger section that includes Jackson's passage from last week. So we'll begin at verse 1, Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Again, our passage will focus on verses 4 through 8. Titus 2, hear God's word. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Thus far, God's word. Well, she looked fine, and she felt fine. But one day, she was bending down to tie her shoe. A friend asked her, hey, what's that on your back? Well, she had no idea because whoever looks at their own back. And so she went home and she asked her mom, hey, what's this on my back? Her mother didn't know, so together they went to the doctor and she asked the doctor, what's this on my back? And the doctor said, let's do an x-ray. And so they did, and when the picture was ready, this young woman who looked fine and felt fine, saw this. Her spine was curved. Now your your spine has a gentle bend to it. My spine does as well. Hers is curved to look almost like the letter S. Now remember, she looked fine and she felt fine, but the x-ray machine revealed that her greatest need was something that she could neither see nor feel. You know, the Bible is like a spiritual x-ray machine. Uh, While we can come to it on any given day, feeling fine, looking fine, it can reveal attitudes and actions that we would have otherwise been unaware of. Attitudes and actions that that have been bent, uh, twisted, uh, disordered by the contrary forces of our world from without or our own heart from within. So this morning, just like any time we open God's word, we're all going to be subject to a spiritual x-ray. What will it show? Well, before we find out, let's remember how we got to this point in the book which, uh, if measured according to its total number of verses, uh, would indicate that we're right uh, smack dab in the center of this letter this morning. 
Well, on June 2, we began by learning that this letter was written by Paul the Apostle to Titus, his true child, in a common faith. So that Titus, whom he had left on the Mediterranean island of uh, Crete during Paul's time there, presumably in Acts 27, uh, so that Titus might put what remained into order. And thus the title of our sermon series for this summer, Called to Order in a Disordered World. We then went on to learn that when Paul told Titus to put what remained into order, he meant first to appoint elders. And so in chapter one, Rob Lister and Kenny Clark and Eric Tanis talked to us about the profile of a qualified elder and then the need for qualified elders. Second, we learned that putting what remained into order uh, meant that Titus was to teach sound doctrine. And we began to look at that last week in chapter two. First among older men and women, uh, that's what Jackson showed us last week, and now among younger men and women, that's what we'll be looking at today. Now, before we look at these four verses, I want to begin with just five uh, quick observations. Observation number one, verses one through eight are addressed to those who are older and younger. Not those who are old and young, but those who are older and younger. See, old and young are subjective terms. Uh, you can't convince me I'm a young man. Uh, my white beard is exhibit A. Uh, nor can you convince me that I'm an old man because I'm not close enough to even begin drawing social security. So there's a sense in which I could dismiss this entire section as having nothing to do with me. But all of us are older than some and younger than others. And that's important to recognize because it means that no matter how old or young you are, this passage is for you. Observation number two, while older women are to teach sound doctrine to younger women, some of that doctrine in this passage is specific to married women. Now we see that because it relates to their husbands and their children. Now, consider what that does not mean, what that does not mean. It, it doesn't mean that every younger woman should be married. Nor does it mean that every younger woman should aspire to be married. But what it does mean is that this profile is profitable for all women to know and encourage in principle and that it is entirely profitable for all younger married women to follow and practice. Observation number three flows out of observation number two. Observation number three, while matters in this passage concerning a wife and her husband and her children and her home can seem outdated, they're not. This x-ray reveals that Christians on first century Crete faced the same challenges as Christians in first century, or rather 21st century California, especially those related to social and sexual mores that strain God's design for marriage and family instead of strengthen it. And we saw uh, the similarities in these cultures in week number one is uh, uh, carefully and clearly laid out by Jackson. 
Observation number four, this week's passage tells us what to do with last week's passage. Verses four through eight tell us what to do with verses one through three. You may recall last Sunday, Jackson said, verse one controls this entire section. That is, teach what accords with sound doctrine. But in verses four and six, Paul further explains that sound doctrine is not isolated, is not an isolated word that is best suited to a library shelf or a college classroom. Rather, sound doctrine is God's word at work. It's God's word at work. So in verse 4, we read, and so train the younger women in sound doctrine. And in verse number 6, we read, likewise, urge the younger men according to sound doctrine. And notice, too, how, how that training occurs. Not by holding a conference, not by holding a class, those, though those things can be helpful and, and, and effective, but by older persons modeling the kind of life that God wants younger ones to live. Not by modeling with perfection, mind you, but modeling with patience and persistence as they themselves grow in God's word with the help of his spirit. So, Doctrine is intended to, to not, only, not only order how we think, but how we act. It, it's not to go in here and stay here, but it's to flow down and fill our hearts. Our doctrine, our belief, should affect our doing, our behavior. Observation number five this passage addresses ideals and not exceptions. It addresses ideals and not exceptions, which means we're going to focus on what's here. And, and um, I'm sure there will be questions that come up uh, in your mind as we go along this morning. Say those. We can talk about them after the sermon, or you can bring them up in your grace group uh, even later this week. So as men and women whose doctrine is intended to, to shape, to order what we do. This morning's uh, sermon is going to give special attention to the ordered life. First, the ordered life of a Christian woman. We see that in verses 4 and 5. Second, the ordered life of a Christian man. We'll see that in verses 6 through 8a. Uh, third, we'll consider the importance of the ordered life. That'll be right there at the end of verse 8, and then we'll briefly consider the purpose of the ordered life, and that's in verses 11 through 14. I don't know who's preaching on that, but I, I'm not going to mess with your stuff. I just want to touch on a few things here. Looking at our lives through this passage is going to be like having a spiritual x-ray. For some of you, what we see here this morning is going to match, by and large, what's going on here and in your world. But for some of you, what we see here is going to reveal um, a condition that, that's more like a disordered S and will need to be addressed. Now, hear me. All of us here, everybody in this room, has room for growth and adjustment. So each of us are going to be challenged by what we see. But know this, whatever you see is not meant to 
tear you down, but to build you up. Remember, Jesus said, I came that you might, you might have life and have that life, not miserably, but abundantly. John 10.10. So, may you receive these words as they were and are intended. Full of grace, revealing what you can be, and life-giving, and not life-draining. So, as we uh, switch on the the x-ray machine, what's the first thing that we see concerning this ordered life? Well, generally what we see is a mutuality between older men and women and younger men and women. And that is especially noteworthy for those of us that grew up in the United States, in particular North America in general, uh, and uh, the West. Now, those of you who grew up in other places, you may not struggle with this, but someone from the United States uh, uh, will more than likely struggle. Because see, on the one hand, the younger set is happy to be done with the older one. Hey, they don't speak our language, they don't sing our songs, they don't share our causes, so out with the old and in with the new. Well, on the other hand, and this is more and more the case, the older set is um, happy to turn things over to the younger set. I mean, they're done giving and they're ready to start taking. Uh, I became especially aware of this at a church at which I once served years ago where it was tough to get the older set to take part in just about anything. We did our time rocking babies. We did our time teaching Sunday school. We did our time planning and organizing the summer programs. I mean, they they spoke of it all like it was a prison sentence, you know? We've done our time. And there were some who were specific enough to say, let the younger men and women do it. These days, meaning days of greater freedom, even retirement, these are the ones I've been waiting for. I, I think of this as the Morongo mentality. Some of you, by your response, have no doubt seen the uh, Morongo Casino commercial, got a couple of geriatrics in silk pajamas jumping up and down on a bed, having a pillow fight, and in the background you have this uh, uh, seductive, uh, siren-like voice in his dulcet tones saying something like, come to our desert oasis and do what you want. Morongo, good times. So when it comes to the mutuality that should exist between older and younger generations in Titus 2, what does the x-ray reveal? What does the x-ray reveal about us as a church? What does it reveal about you who attend this church? Are you one who steps in and seeks to teach the younger, learn from the older? Or are you one who is seeking greater generational independence. Well, generational interdependence is what we want to encourage here at Grace, and that's why one of our membership values is diversity, where we encourage the generations to come together, most especially in grace groups where they can uh, uh, teach and learn from one another. You know, a friend of mine has always challenged the members of his church family to deliberately make at least one friend who is older 
than them and from whom they can learn and make one friend who is younger than them and into whose life they can pour. That's good advice because in that way, no matter your age, we can all be practitioners of this passage. Uh, All teachers and learners, all uh, being stretched to give and to grow. So, again, generally speaking, we see that an ordered life involves mutuality between those who are older and those who are younger. Specifically, we see in verses 4 and 5, the ordered life of a Christian woman. Now, this is the kind of life in which an older Christian woman should be growing, or to use Jackson's terminology uh, from last week, the trajectory on which she should find herself, either in practice or in principle. Because, you see, uh, not every woman will marry, or they may marry late. Uh, Consider well-known Bible teacher Nancy Lee DeMoss. She was married at age 57. And yet, she taught uh, younger women about loving their husbands and their children, even as an older single woman. This is also the kind of life to which a younger Christian woman, especially one who wishes to be married, should aspire. Now, the question is, how young is young? Again, uh, Nancy Lee DeMoss. She married as an older woman and then, as it were, became a younger woman in matters of marriage and stepchildren. So uh, there's some latitude here in how we understand older and younger. Well, the first thing in which an older woman trains a younger woman is what it means to love her husband and children. And that, that phrase there puts it in a package. It's a package deal. Love her husband and children. And interestingly, the word there for loves mean, love means love them and like them. All of us here have a mother. I hope you have a mother. Otherwise, you're from the planet Krypton or, or something like that. But we all have a mother, and your mother loves you, or she loved you. But do you ever give your mother a reason to like you? I tested my mother. I tested my mother right up and well into my 20s. Children can be taxing and testing. Husbands, your wife no doubt loves you. She married you. She committed herself to you for life. But do you give her a reason to like you? Husbands can be taxing and testing. I am one, I know. My hunch is that there are some wives and mothers in this room for whom the x-ray reveals not love but resentment. I'm doing and doing and doing and this is what I get? I labor from before you leave in the morning until after you get home at night and you want me to do what else? I feed you all. I clothe you all. And and you... Where's the love, family? Well, what are some corrective steps that a younger wife and mother can take if the x-ray reveals uh, an S-shaped curve of resentment uh, building in her soul? Well, to begin, recognize and remember 
that in God's economy of order, family is first. The church in general, and grace in particular, is built out of households, at the head of which, by and large, are a husband and a wife. If the adversary can discourage and even destroy a family, then he weakens God's work in the world. Next. Since word order matters in the Greek language, and that's uh, the language in which this letter was written, recognize that when it comes to family, loving one's husband is of first order than the children. A friend of mine once said, loving my spouse is the greatest gift I can give to my children. And they're right. Because husbands and wives that grow in love and like not only provide present stability for their children in particular and their family in general, but also promote future order should their children have families of their own. Yesterday, I saw this in spades at the memorial service for Luke Shackelford's grandfather, who along with his wife, Uh, worked at building a marriage of love and like over the decades that is now bearing fruit in their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren and their great-great-grandchildren. Finally, loving your husband is not based on his potential for growth. That's not why you do it, but rather your devotion to the Lord as expressed in his word and as exemplified by Sarah. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, where we read, For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. Well, that's the first thing. Second thing in which an older woman is to train a younger woman is what it means to be self-controlled and pure. Self-control certainly maintains order in one's life. Self-control also maintains order throughout a family, including the family of God. It's the hallmark uh, of an elder. We see that in chapter 1, verse 8. Older men, chapter 2, verse 2. Older women, 2, 3. Where we see that self-control is to be especially modeled in matters of appetite and behavior. While in 2.5 we see that it is to be modeled in matters of purity, thereby encouraging uh, sexual devotion to one's husband as well as spiritual devotion to the Lord. Now, these two characteristics, self-control and purity, help strengthen one's understanding of the third thing in which an older woman is to train a younger woman, and that is working at home. Now, the 21st century stay-at-home wife and mother, who is commonly viewed as one whose person is unchallenged, whose talents are repressed, whose roles are demeaning, is not what Paul had in mind when he wrote this letter. Oh, Paul uh, more than likely had the Old Testament example of the robust and entrepreneurial Proverbs 31 woman, as well as the New Testament example of his friend Lydia, who was successful and respected at home and at work. 
Acts chapter 16. So how do these examples and the passage before us order our own understanding of what it means to be a wife and mother who's working at home? Well, first of all, notice that it's important uh, to see that a wife and mother is not a slave. She's not a slave. She's not engaged in forced labor. She's engaged in meaningful work into which she voluntarily entered at the time she got married. Secondly, a wife and mother is a worker whose work is of inestimable value. There's there's no higher work in which one can engage than being a mother and raising children, managing a home. And, And that's why as a worker, she is endowed with great worth and dignity. Third, a wife and mother is a worker whose home is at the center of her work. I'm going to really bear down on my notes here, so I uh, 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 am careful in what I'm about to say. It's not her house that is the center of her work, but her home, meaning the persons and interests that comprise it. And while her home is the center of her work, it may not be her only work. More about that in a moment. Fourth, a wife and mother is a worker whose interests and education enrich her home. Like a woman I know named Mary who took their Midwestern ranch home, uh, remodeled it inside and out into a French chateau, and now hosts guests for no charge on the level of a high-end B&B. It's absolutely spectacular. Or Carol, Carol, who earned a graduate degree with distinction in Bible and theology, and when I asked her what she was going to do with it, she replied, if my studies were only to make me a better mother, then they were all worth the time and effort. Fifth, a wife and mother is also one whose work is done as part of a team. Um, Just because a wife is working at home doesn't mean that she's the only worker at home. Uh, Over the years, when Nancy and I have had guests into our house, I'll usually be seen greeting people at the front door, inviting them into the living room, chatting them up there, uh, directing them into the dining room when dinner's ready. Whereas Nancy uh, will normally be seen in the kitchen, making the final preparations for the meal, uh, setting uh, the food service out, and then giving some pre-meal instruction. Uh, it is also 1950s in the way it appears. But what most people don't see is that more often than not, beforehand, I will have shopped for the food, and I will have vacuumed the house, and I will have set the table. And then after I've said goodbye to you at the door, I'll clean off the table and I'll do the dishes, having sent her off to take a nap. Uh, A wife and mother is one who works, but whose work is part of a team. Now, does all this mean that a wife and mother can only do work at the home address? And the answer to that is no. 
Uh, as one scholar points out, Paul's really not so much concerned about the location where the work's done, but rather the motivation behind it. He puts it this way, any woman who makes a career status, uh, any woman who makes career status or financial advantage a higher priority in her life than the welfare of her marriage, children, or home transgresses scripture as well as the signals of a heart sensitive to God's spirit. So again, my wife Nancy has always worked outside the home, but with deference to the home. So for instance, before the girls were born, Nancy was a a full-time wholesaler of financial products and thereby made the money so that it was possible for us to buy a house in which to raise our family. When the girls came along, Nancy did a different kind of work, work that could be accomplished either when I was home to care for the girls or uh, maybe when they were asleep. When the girls were older, Nancy did work that complemented their school calendar and our larger domestic priorities. And now that our girls are adults, Nancy is free to work full-time in a variety of uh, ways uh, um, and to do so gratis. So the wife and mother who's working at home can find herself doing that in any number of ways depending on the age and stage of her family. Fourth thing in which an older woman is to train a younger woman, and that is kindness. In fact, this characteristic seems to be attached to the thing at which we just looked, meaning that a younger woman is not only to be working at home, but doing so in a way that's kind. Uh, the word literally means good or, or useful. She's not to be a busybody, merely going through the motions of being a wife and a mother, but truly looking after the well-being of her home, its members and its affairs. Fifth, fifth thing in which an older woman is to train a younger woman is being submissive to her own husband. Like working at home, being submissive to one's own husband, one's own husband, one's own husband, is a condition into which a woman voluntarily enters at marriage. But consider the kind of man to whom she willingly submits herself. His profile is that of one who loves his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians 5.25 a profile that entirely fails to meet the me, Tarzan, you, Jane image that some like to project onto a Christian husband. Phil Riken helpfully points out, and, and listen closely here, Phil Riken helpfully points out that a wife's willing submission to her husband and a husband's loving sacrifice for his wife combine to reflect in total Christ's work in our world. A work in which he willingly submitted himself to his Father's will and lovingly sacrificed himself for his bride, the church. And that's why a Bible-ordered marriage can be so beautiful, so fulfilling, and so compelling. This is a relationship that requires Training. It's a relationship that requires modeling. 
My decades of experience in, in university ministry have led me to these couple of conclusions. One, the, the meaning of this passage that a wife should be submissive to her own husband is not under dispute. I mean, any honest scholar is going to tell you what it says is what it says. Any liberal scholar is going to tell you what it says is what it says. We don't buy it, but that's in fact what it says. And second, students who believe the Bible and want to adhere to this command have found it very difficult. And I'll tell you why, and I've heard this too many times to count. They find it difficult because they've never seen that kind of relationship worked out. They said, we see it, we understand it, we we believe, but we've just never seen it. And so that's why having a word-ordered marriage can make such an impact on others, especially younger men and women. Not only does it show them what husbands and wives are to do for each other, but it shows them what Jesus did for us. So having directed the older women to train the younger women, now Paul shifts his focus of attention and directs the older men to train the younger men in like fashion. So Paul commands Titus to urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And again, this has already been stressed four times in the letter and now for a fifth time here in chapter 2, verse 6. That Paul stresses the need for self-control indicates the lack of it in Cretan culture and the Cretan church as seen by the great contrast between those who are controlled by the gospel and those who have rebelled against it. Chapter 1, verse 10. Paul then goes on to tell Titus that that the good works he urges the others to do, he should model for them. In fact, he said you should be a type. You should be a template that they can follow. We saw this last winter in the book of Philippians. We're seeing it here again in the book of Titus. Not only am I going to tell you what to do, but now I'm going to show you how to get it done. Doing good works is repeatedly emphasized by Paul throughout Titus and 1st and 2nd Timothy, which together comprise the pastoral epistles. It's the exact opposite of his opponents who lack good works, chapter 1, verse 6, and the very life for which Christ came to save us from our rebellion, chapter 2, verse 14. Paul goes on to exhort Titus that in his teaching he is to show younger men integrity and dignity and sound speech. In other words, character and conduct that backs up everything he has to say, and that according to the Scripture. Because they were the exact opposite. The false teachers were the exact opposite, and they had infected the church. They were deceivers, they were liars, they rejected the truth, they were after shameful gain. Now in saying all this, Paul doesn't mean that Titus would be free from opposition. In fact, just the opposite. But what it does mean is that when Titus is opposed, it's not going to be due to immorality, thereby maintaining his reputation and shaming that of the opposition, chapter 2, verse 8a. So, what is it that keeps this uh, order from being an arbitrary list of do's and don'ts. What is it that keeps this order from being arbitrary? 
Well, notice in all of this the importance of the ordered life. And here's the bottom line. The ordered life is not about you. Now, it has entirely to do with you, but it's not about you. It's about the gospel. How does Paul sum up the ordered life of a woman and the ordered life of a man? Does it all result in happiness and prosperity and admiration of others? Well, it could be some of that. could be all those things, but... Scripture's stated endgame of the ordered life is so that those who oppose the gospel can neither revile God's word, we see that in verse number five, nor God's people, we see that in verse eight. You see, even when it stands opposed, the, the ordered life reflects the beauty of the gospel. We see this in 1 Timothy 2 and 3, where Paul speaks to the order of the church family, which supports God's desire that everyone to, God's desire for everyone to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2 4. We see it again in 1 Peter 2 and 3, where Peter speaks to the order of the home and society that supports his desire that many will glorify God on the day he visits. That is the last day. 1 Peter 2 See, our tendency is to think that God's order needs to be reordered so that he's going to become more attractive toward those who oppose him. But God doesn't need our help in that way. He needs our obedience. When we try to make him attractive by reordering relationships, we actually work at cross-purposes with his plans. This is why Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, by which he means the way you order your relationships, so that when they slander you as evildoers, they'll see your good works and will glorify God on the last day. In other words, the world may not like, they may even hate the way our relationships are ordered, but that order in concert with our words could be the very thing that lead them to confess their sins and embrace the gospel. The ordered life is important because it's about the gospel, but its importance, as we've seen in 1 Peter and now here in Titus, is entirely tied to its purpose. Now with that, we'll start to bring things in for a landing here. The reason Paul wanted to put things in order was not because he was establishing some new religion, not because he was some control freak. Rather, the reason Paul wanted to put things into order is because, as we see in 2.12, the grace of God had appeared in Christ, bringing salvation for all people while training God's people to renounce past evil, 2.12, live in present holiness, 2.13, and to wait for future glory, 2.13 and 14, which he describes in verse 13 as our blessed hope, the the thing for which we're living, the, the center of the target, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So again, what we've looked at this morning is not an arbitrary list of do's and don'ts. Younger women, you do this because... I say, younger men, you do this because I say. 
Rather, it is, and hear this, it's a present order that anticipates the destruction of disorder and the final order of all things as summed up in Christ. Well, what did the spiritual x-ray reveal? Are you growing in order or are you languishing in disorder? Remember, what you see is not meant to tear you down. It's meant to, to build you up. Jesus came that you might have life and have it, not miserably, but abundantly. Hey, what happened to the girl with the S-shaped spine? Remember, she felt fine and she looked fine, but not only was her spine curved, it was continuing to curve at the rate of about one degree per year, meaning that over time she would become crippled and disabled. That's just like sin. Not only does it put us in a disordered condition, but if left to itself, continues to disorder and further disable us. And so in response to the x-ray, the girl had surgery. And you'll see the result here in a moment. And there it is, straightened up. But you know, it didn't happen like that. They had to get in there and they had to manipulate the spine and they had to attach all of that hardware and her, her muscles that had been accommodated and were very comfortable with disorder had to be uh, moved and, and reshaped and it was all very painful and difficult. But you know what? Over time... The disorder, which gave way to order, has led to a much healthier and brighter future. In fact, the other day I saw a picture of that girl, and I immediately commented on how much she'd grown. And interestingly, she hadn't grown at all. But by straightening her spine, she picked up two inches. We all have room for spiritual adjustment and growth. Order from disorder that comes by way of God's word with the help of his spirit and the support of his people. Order from disorder that's not meant to tear you down, but to build you up. Order from disorder that highlights the importance of the gospel and the glory of Christ's finished work and his imminent return. May you receive these words as they were and are intended. Full of grace. Revealing what you can be, life-giving, and not life-draining. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is what, what we want, but we all recognize that uh, we come up short. We could do better. And yet to do better, we need your help. We need the uh, corrective guidance of your word. We need the comfort and support of your spirit. We need the encouragement of those who are seated around us even now. So Lord, hear our prayer. We want to honor you. We want to reflect you in your fullness. Honor you in a way whereby you can use us to point the way to the last day and the hope that all men and women can know by way of you. And seeing that, 
and being united with you for all time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.